0: Me, I'm also wearing. I don't know if you guys noticed my dialectic shirt today. Full void, full <laughs> void. I love
1: it. I saw it earlier and I was like, Oh, it's so perfect. <laughs> so, we didn't expect to be doing this, but this is the beginning of episode two on dialectics. Here we are.
0: Jake and Matt have just trapped us in this office. And yeah,
1: they're sitting in their goddamn corners just making us talk all this shit <laughs> about goddamn dialectics.
0: We're just drinking our water and eating pickles. Um, but yeah, so we're going to get started on this, um, and uh, all your questions will be answered, I promise. Yes, I,
1: I promise you will have a determinant, <laughs> one-sentence answer to what a dialectic. Dun, 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 dun. Thank
0: you. So, the, the German ideal is to follow Kant. We've got Schelling, we've got Fichte, and then, of course, uh, Hegel is looming very large right now in this discussion. I'm sure yeah. you can all
1: feel or just about to yeah, talk yeah. about him. This Hegel's just chilling, just a uh, ghost. Yeah, he's just like. He got an arm. And this is who I'm holding right here. <laughs> this is Hegel. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there he is, there he is. In his, with his dour expression yeah, dour that he always expression. says but, um, about um, I uh so Dorno says about this specific period of time we're talking about um he says, quote, The dialectic must be regarded as Kantian philosophy which has come to self consciousness and self understanding. So we're gonna get really into this in the next Kant episode. But Kant doesn't quite bring us there. No. Uh, he's he's a little too unsure of the ground he's treading upon And uh, he's got other work to do. Um, And so the first sort of uh, student of his to come along is Fichte. And Fichte isn't uh, a true student of Kant, but looked up to Kant. And, um, you know, I don't know about you and your research of Fichte, but Fichte holds a funny place in the development of the dialectic because... Some people will say that he had nothing to do with the
1: dialectic, and he yeah. talks about it. He wasn't a
0: dialectician. And other, you'll also hear other people um, really refer to him in the Kantian sense, where he, he wasn't a dialectician, he was a synthesizer, he was a yeah. synthesetician, something like that, yeah. um, which I think kind of holds more true. A little bit
1: that I know, because I've read Shelley, I've read Kant and I've read Hegel. I have not read Fichte except for Little Fragments. Same, I have have never
0: read anything major
1: by Fichte. But what I have come to see is that there is a clear line of what he does to Kant. Because Kant wrote his work in three books. And what did Fichte want to do? He wanted to make one system of pure reason. And... The main way that he did so was by cleaving off nomina. Right. Right.
0: Right. He, and he he wanted to get he didn't feel like you could have a holistic system with nomina, with acknowledging that you just can't know yes. certain things.
1: So he takes up this fundamentally anti-realist position and instead replaces it with intersubjectivity. Right. Right. And the idea of the absolute ego. Eagle, ego equals ego, right? There's all these kind of internal contradictions that come up that he sees as being necessary to resolve. That, for instance, that um, you know, the philosopher must necessarily suspend their empirical experience and see the ego, their own ego, that's in, empir- in empirical terms always a subject related to an object. But they must see it as a concept. And that begins the way to philosophy. But then after that, they must have this pure, like, intuitive experience, right, of, of kind of free will that will then allow them to take that concept and use it in a way that uh, allows them to access absolute knowledge. And, and similarly, he has this relationship between the ego and the non ego how the ego necessarily requires the non-ego. Right, right. So, because uh, what is non-ego, the object, again, is part of the absolute ego. Everything is our perception in a system. And in that regard, there is massive implications for how Hegel would write. Because she, as we will see, or we can talk about right now, Schelling and Hegel, they were contemporaries. And Schelling, much like Fichte, um, got a job from Goethe, right? And it's almost as if Goethe found Schelling as like an antidote to what he was hearing from Hegel and Fichte, right? Which is that this natural world, this world of phenomena, isn't even real. Like, forget it.
0: Right, right. You
1: know, for, for Fichte, it's absolute ego and various in- internal contradictions. For Hegel, it's the dialectic, right?
0: Yeah, and I mean, you know, for Fichte, like, where the dialectic comes into play with him and, and why I think he's so important for what is to follow with Hegel is, so for Fichte, he, he basically decides, like, kind of what you're saying about this ultimate ego idea that, um, so he comes up with this first principle, like, das ich. Like, I, basically, I am I, the I, right? And the reason I bring this up, because I'm not going to get into it too much, but he really wanted that this, like, first principle be not a fact that is um, experienced, but an act, this, this act that is rational. Um, and so he, he kind of conceived it as this I am I, this creation of self. Um, and where the dialectic comes in, and so you talk about the, the non-ego, is that you what you have is the sort of extension of uh, Kant's sort of formulation and understanding of this subject, object um, relationship. And you know, I, I think in the heart of the matter, this is often what, Dialectics is about is this subject-object relationship that we can critique the subject and through doing that We may learn something about the object, right? Yeah. So through critiquing phenomena And this is what Kant would say is that maybe there's a chance to make noumena less yes. to make the territory that it has Less yes. and that maybe there's a path to learn more about the other. Yeah. And so, despite the like very strange contradictions and sort of falling from grace that Fichte experiences in his career, I think what he does set up, particularly for Hegel to run with, is this subject-object antinomy.
1: And, and also, in that subject-object, because what he says is, you can experience an object, but you don't get absolute knowledge of it, right? Right. This idea of partial identity, right? He has this idea where, yeah, we experience the object, oh, I see the cup, but I don't know every a- aspect of that cup, right? So we're containing with this, these partial identities, and to, but to reach absolute knowledge, right, we have to go through this process of understanding what is absolute ego, understanding how the cup is part of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and in that, we find understanding in this process. And, and that does hold... A closeness to what Hegel was doing, whereas compared to Schelling, who is more closely thought with Hegel, right. right? I actually see far less closeness. You know, I see him as far more objective than idealist. I see him far more as a naturalist, yeah, right. And I, I don't see. Yeah, uh, I mean, he's more of a German idealist
0: in that functionary of. Of German nationalism and this yeah. like um, identity to, uh, to the land,
1: right? Yeah. Um, but but he he almost seemed to be more theological. I mean, Fichte was uh, was quite radical politically, and Hegel, while not radical, was left of right most of the time. Um, you know, particularly in his views on Haiti. Um, but for for Schelling, it. Seemed like his ultimate end was in a critique of both Kant and Hegel. Because for Kant, right, when he gets to his third book, Critique of Judgment, and he has this aesthetic idea, he, he's thinking, I cannot actually ascertain that you are more than just another object, according to the transcendental analytic, right? Yeah, of I course. have to assume as much. Of course. I automatically do. And Kant would insist it. that you must, that you
0: must take every human as, as um, an ends and not a means. You exactly. Know, that you must treat everyone like you treat like a subject.
1: But at the same time, aesthetically, you cannot know it. Exactly. And for Schelling, this creates a problem. He sees in kind of what he, what he, do, he would describe as uh, the naive philosophy of the past as we were kind of realizing this difference between mind and body, the ability, as we see in the kind of uh, Indian and Chinese traditions, of, you know, treating this kind of flowing reciprocal synthesis between nature and the self, right? And, you know, Goethe, similarly, was frustrated with this uh, denial of objectivity, right? This denial of the object as object and you, you see in his uh, natural philosophy um, a an attempt to go past the Kantian sublime to find this almost emotional experience and to see through art, through human art, a means of greater understanding uh, our, uh, as our way of actually connecting and creating the power of nature, but through most of it, all, his relation to Hegel seems critical, mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that he sees absolute knowledge, as Hegel would describe it, as only a description of absolute knowledge, because it lacks nature.
0: Yeah, and, and I think actually goes on to sort of help create the myth of Hegel, too, I mean, because really the critique that Schelling's bringing, I think, is still pertinent today, and it's pertinent against Kant, that there is this sort of a priori emotional sense that we have that, that is much more included in, say, the Buddhist or um, in the Tao, the, the, that kind of conception of the world that is still maybe lacking in Hegel. Um, but you can't, you can't do it all.
1: Yeah, you, you, know. can't, you can't do it all. And, he- and Hegel, as, as we can get to now, Hegel's task was so immense and his, his scope was, was so immense that, you know, to, to bring that criticism is necessary, but it doesn't get entirely how drastically he changed dialectics and defined Getting back to where we began, why everyone in art, in theory, etc., throws this word around, you know? right? Definitely. So yeah, let's 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 chomp to the
0: meat of this matter. Um, do do you want to try and just give a really basic conception of Hegel's aims here? Because yeah. I think that's a good place to start. And obviously, it's a huge book that. We will go into much more in depth later. But it's important enough where maybe we should take a little bit of time and to talk about what he set out to do and then what he did do.
1: Well, I, I saw a very good description of the basic functions of what they said was the Western dialectic, but really it's the Hegelian dialectic, right? And it's by a guy named Velsvalad Halopnucki. I don't know. I, don't know. <laughs> I guarantee more, you. That's harder. Than any of the other names that we said, so you know. Anyway, (laughs) he said that it was one, the law of development through contradictions, two, the law of mutual interconnection, three, the law of transformation of opposites into their own opposites when brought to an extreme, and four, law of the spiral form of development. Mm. And then, in Hegel's own distinction, he saw the dialectic as having three specific points, right? Number one is fixity. Number two is the dialectical or the negatively rational, as he put it. And three, which has been put many ways, he calls the speculative, the positively rational, or as we would know it, the negation of negation, right. which is also called sublation, right? So in describing Hegel's dialectic, I think what it essentially does is it takes an object, right, and it turns that object into a proposition, right? And then it opposes that proposition with sort of its most extreme negation. One for instance, We can do the classic one. There is being, right? Its negation is nothing, right? But, naturally, being is not its past self. Being is going through a process of changing. And therefore, when they are synthesized, the most extreme of nothing is the changing of being. We find becoming, right? And in that, you can kind of see just one of the archetypal forms of his process. Yeah. But I'd be
0: interested to hear and And, and of dialectics in, in total, right? Because, you know, let's look at that, just briefly pause on it a second. So being, uh, we're going to try and negate it. We're going to try and eliminate it. Because, you know... Uh, the cool thing about the Hegelian dialectic is it's very much returning to these platonic ideas of achieving something positive through negation. Yes. Like, we are going to find a truth, we are going to figure something out by critiquing it, by trying to prove it wrong, these kinds of attempts. And so, like, this is a, kind of a really the most extreme example of this. We have being. Well, uh, what is its opposite? It's non-being. It's nothing. But being is also when you start... Looking at it this way, well, its being is also nothing. It's not a, a glass. It's not a thing. Yeah. Right. So it, it's not negated by non-being, or yes. it's not negated by nothing. Um, and through that process of subsuming that that new understanding that we can't quite put anywhere, that 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 it, we know is true but is not doesn't make sense we wind up with becoming and that and that okay if being is actually not a thing then it's a process then it's an act then it's something and, and and so you of course get this the entire freeing of sort of Western thought into this more dynamic sphere where existence is not a fixed thing, it is this dynamic thing. It is
1: a process, it is becoming, right? Yeah, and, and, and what you define about the formal process is so important about your description of nothing. He is not creating abstractions. These are not supposed to be abstract propositions. Right. But rather, we're supposed to see in pushing them to that that extent of abstraction, how they dissolve into one another, right? That... You know, you could easily, as I actually did prior to this in, in a quicker, in this quicker description of it, just that, okay, there's being and then, you know, but being transforms is nothing. But, but that does not address nothing completely, right? That nothing itself, that being itself is nothing, in a sense. And that nothing itself is being innocent. And that it's a reciprocal relationship. And, and, and that's what's so important to grasp in the Hegelian dialectic is that in each step there before the sublation, before the negation of negation, before it imminently grows to a greater concept, that these two ideas must relate in this complex way, where there is information going in each direction, fulfilling the other concept mm-hmm. and mi- allowing to learn more about both concepts, being and nothing. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and, and I mean, and that's what, you know, it's like the being and being turning into becoming is this, like, pivotal point in, in the history of philosophy, um, but sometimes its ramifications, I think, get missed because it's such a cool, like, oh, being into becoming, it feels so freeing and emancipatory, um, but even eschewing those concepts themselves, the act of dialectics, the, the process, the the goal of it is you know, almost witnessing the growth and change of a concept to such an extent that it becomes something else, that, uh, that it becomes different. So that the concept you started with is now a different concept. And so the sort of importance of the dialectic of this process is that it actually changes the world, and it changes both the concrete thing you're dealing with and how you understand it, but in the other direction, also the sort of absolute and our understanding of these, the sort of nominal world. Yes. Right? Yes. And and that it's 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 this ever-moving transitory concept. And that's why describing what the dialectic is, talking about dialectics, is so hard and is often so misunderstood because dialectic is, dialectics itself works that way. And the more you know about it, the more the concept of that uh, methodology changes and becomes something new yes and and so it makes it hard to talk about and kind of confusing, but it also is makes it an incredibly powerful tool.
1: yes, so I think what is what we can say that's important about it that will distinguish it from other theories of change, right because what would follow are other theories of change and critiques of the dialectic but is that in its limitation to these two con- two concepts right it sets formal limits on how you reach this new concept it shows that this relationship of a dualism turns into one right Whereas it isn't simply talking about a manifold like Kant would, right? The manifold of perceptions. Or later, as Nietzsche would, the manifold of perspectives, right? It is something that is easily, formally applicable, right? Something that you can go and take looking at even more complex objects, right? Like, say you're using uh, critical race theory or something mm-hmm, like that, mm-hmm. and you want to apply the dialectic through that, and you want to think about a con- the concept of the black person versus the white person, or whatever, or maybe spin it around. Right. right? In both cases, w- where you start your thesis, you will find an interesting way of thinking about the other through the way that you present those things. If you say that the black person is the thesis, or the white person is the the thesis, and then try to negate the other, you'll start to see how, and this is also important to Hegel, historically, contextually, linguistically, that these concepts are mutually dependent.
0: That they will
1: naturally create something more. Maybe we could say race. What is the negation of race, right? We could say it's humanity. Or something like that, and uh, in that process, I'm not sure if the dialectic has been done. I don't have a solution myself. But what we would come out with, what what would come through, our thinking through these these concepts, would be something that is more complex and is more useful in representing yes some whole.
0: And and then that point is so important because you know that's the thing with dialectics. It's not about finding solutions. That's specifically not what the process accomplishes. It does not solve any problems, because when you get through it, where are you at? You're at a new problem. Yeah. right? And so, um, I believe it was Adorno, but one of the best ways that i found to think about the dialectical process is this concept of uniting identity with non-identity.
1: Yes.
0: right? So it's the same process of, or the same antinomy of subject-object, and it's and it's uniting these two things that cannot be the same, but which must be because they're both contained within our concept of, of identity, of being, yes. right? Um, and so it's this incredibly powerful tool in that way because you know, it, it is, as far as the, the spiral um, direction that you mentioned yes. of the Hegelian dialectic, uh, i can 't remember that the russian guy 's name, but um, is, is very fundamental because that is sort of the aim of a dialectic yeah. is, is to is sort of the, the return right and this comes up in Nietzsche and all these other things. but at that moment of return, both the place you are returning to and the person you are are incredibly different they
1: 're incredibly different now. What I would say is the limit of the Hegelian system is his idea of the absolute, right? He does cleave nomina, just like Fichte cleaves nomina. Now, he's far more uh, attendant to the world, and therefore there isn't the same sense of anti-realism, because he's applying it to history, he's applying it to events. As we get with the slave master dialectic, He's mythologizing this process through which the slave can reach consciousness through conflict, through fear, through work, through struggle, and so on. Through escaping
0: the the non-identity that he has been given from his his master. And just
1: as the master cannot achieve identity because they're mediating their relationship with things to the other person, to the worker, right? These things are very thoughtful. But when you get to this notion of absolute knowledge, the movement from the individual, the most simple things here and now, right, all the way to the totality of knowledge, which will fundamentally be resolved in institutions and state, right? there is a, a certain teleology to it that um, limits it. And, and as we'll get to our final part, I think has an influential limitation on the ne- next great, and maybe in some sense the final uh, transformation of the dialectic
0: in Marx. So um, I've got the perfect quote for you for that transition. Um, I, of course, didn't write what book I got this from. Um, but it, it, was, it was one of his early writings. Was, I think it was even earlier than the Gundrisa, So whatever it may have been. But he's, he, he, Karl Marx writes, and again, ding, 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 like probably all you've been waiting for is like, what the heck is uh, dialectical materialism? Well, we're here, so we're going to talk about it. Um, but Karl Marx writes, setting out from idealism I hit upon seeking the idea in the real itself. Informally, the gods had dwelt above the world. They had now become its center. And so Hegel, you know, writing about the Hegelian dialectic and the phenomenology of the spirit, you know, is coming off of Kant. You know, he's concerned about the metaphysical. He's concerned about that which is greater than our physical world. He's concerned... He's questions about the absolute, about um, the unknowable. And um, Karl Marx gets this idea from Engels, who writes a book, The, the Dialectic of the Natural, yes. um, that this is actually an amazing tool for society. And that this is a tool that can be used in the material makeup of culture and society and thus the, like, actual lived experiences of the people who live in
1: it. For sure.
0: Right? Um, and so this is, basically becomes what, we, what is called as
1: historical materialism. Yes. There, there are two aspects to Marx's uh, system. It's, uh, there is historical materialism and dialectical materialism. And I think they can broadly be separated into... One is dealing with how the movement of human activity um, can, can go towards utopia right? Uh, through this dialectical analysis of history. And it is an ex post facto uh, analysis and therefore open to critique as projection. But in many ways it's so predictive that it, it resists that, that critique. Mm-hmm. But, on the other hand, at looking at these particular um, antinomies, these particular contradictions that rise in society through our economy, through our capitalist economy now, that uh, remain unresolved and that he theorizes through economy can be resolved uh, in communism. So, I I saw an interesting... um, uh, diagram, right, and it showed kind of the, the figures, the human figures, of his, 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 his historical dialectic, his historical materialism, and it said the patricians, to the plebeians, to the feudal lords, uh, to, to the serfs, to the bourgeois capitalists, to the proletarian workers with revolution, and then to communism, which is ultimately imagined as a utopian form. But where he begins before that is much like this uh, master-slave dialectic is in observing that there is a central aspect of work in coming to consciousness, and that there's a central aspect of work in the demands of our present, or as his present and now that has evolved industrialized society. So he comes up with all of these. Distinctions, um, means and ends, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, yeah, and he's applying this this idea
0: of um, like the Hegelian dialectic in in the actual formulation of wor- of the world. So not that things are faded, but this is why revolution enters into his sort of philosophy is that um, he's taking a dialectical approach to his society and. There needs to be some method of.
1: of Resolution? Yeah,
0: of subulation. Of, or, or, of sublation.
1: Subla- yeah.
0: Yes, excuse me, sublation, you know. And what is that going to be? Because the dialectic, and you've got to remember this when talking about Marx, is, again, it's not something that is a pro- thing that produces solutions, right? Yes. And so if he's looking at his world and what he is living in is the start of the liberal world where, you know, we've got to remember that the ideals of that time period given to us from Locke and, um, you, you know, yeah, exactly, John, yeah. all his interlocutors, Hobbes. Hobbes was the guy I was thinking of, thank you, um, the Leviathan, um, but is this world in which our subjective lives, that we can create meaning out of our subjective lives and those subjective experiences uh, are of the highest value. Yet living in a world that much like in a a sort of analogous way to like Hegel's master-slave dialectic, is the exact opposite,
1: yeah, and that so we, that we suffer.
0: right, and so you're, he's presented with this contradiction of his society that it is one which we value these things that we actively suppress,
1: and and in this sense, that is why Hegel, I mean, uh, Marx's materialist dialectic is often thought of as kind of like this pinnacle point from which now all dialectics kind of spawn and, but do not transform is because he really goes and puts the dialectic through every level. right As you pointed out, he's looking at his sci- society and seeing the internal contradictions. But for instance, he could look at something like the relationship between production and consumption and he would apply the dialectic to that, right? And uh, I have like the examples of his description here, right? Production needs consumption. Production necessitates consumption of raw materials and a need for labor. Production diminishes consumption. Production reduces what is available for consumption. Consumption needs production. Produces objects and sometimes needs of consumption. Consumption diminishes production. Reduces what is available for productive consumption. Right? So... He goes into like all of these aspects of our capitalist society, and he shows that it is there are all these mutually sustaining contradictions that are unresolved, and that the primary means of this is through a stratification of class, of a dialectic of class between bourgeois society mm-hmm. and proletarian society, and. So, naturally, for him, following Hegel, where it resolved in the absolute, he resolves in the kind of utopian end of revolution and communism. Now, it begs the question against Aristotle's rules, as this dialectic has, you know, flouted Aristotle's rules greatly, if that utopia is possible. We talked about this on the last episode, um, the NFT's episode, but... um, you know, that teleology, that it is necessary that we find communism, that communism will be utopian, will always be the greatest means of critique against it. Yeah. But it does not actually get to the content of what Marx is talking about.
0: Well, and I mean, that's, I think, the most amazing thing about Marx and his dialectical materialism is that, you know, while there is always this critique, right, um... You know, so in a nutshell, his dialectical materialism is the contradiction of the bourgeois social relations, which values the individual, versus the capitalist mode of production, which uh, absolutely does not value the individual, or only values the individual in a consumptive way. Yes. Um, his sort of short answer to what that dialectic made for him was that uh, communism is the next phase of human societal development. Um, you know, obviously the biggest critique against him would be like, well, okay, that didn't happen. Um, although it has in certain areas. Yeah. But you cannot read Marx and not see the incredibly numerous ways in which his dialectic has been proven utterly true. Yes. Whether it's the neo-imperialism, whether it's the alienation and loss of, um, the, and kind of atomization of our personal lives. Yes. It, it compounded. Exponentially so by the internet and computers Um, and all these small things, you know. And um, for me, which actually brings up a greater critique as far as uh, the dialectic is concerned, is that this sort of like obsession with communism is kind of the reification of the dialectical system. Yes. In that, you know, our current society, our current place could also use. A dialectical um, look at it, and and it might and it might lead to something similar, but it but you know that as soon as that Karl Marx did his work, we were presented with a new dialectic, yes. uh, and I feel like we've kind of ossified
1: ourselves uh, on his I, I, interpretation. I would agree absolutely, and I think I think this is a good place to you know kind of find our end because. I think as we go on in this series, right, we will meet Hegel and we will meet Marx, mm-hmm. but we will also meet in Nietzsche and in Deleuze, right, the philosophers of difference. right, And in difference there is, a, now referring back to earlier concept, the positive theory of flux, of change, of transformation, of relations. It does not rely on what could be assumed, of Hegel at least, representation of formalism, of um, teleology. Mm-hmm. Right? Conflict. Yes, Con- yes, the, the strict contradiction of things, right? In the, in the regards of the two aforementioned thinkers, contradiction doesn't really exist, right? all, All that exists is complexity, right? And so I think what we can learn about the dialectic is that there isn't a right or wrong to the dialectic, as I think you have been pointing out for the latter part of this conversation. But rather that the dialectic is a tool. And it is a tool applied in better or worse ways, in more interesting, or more hypothesized mm-hmm. ways, mm-hmm. as Kant w- would say. And that in our present, as we are gra- grasping with the apparent flaws of our, our economic system, of, of the failures of capitalism, that we should be open to all of the methods and that dialectics in its new form and even going back. Reading Indian dialectical ideas, reading uh, Muslim ideas on dialectics, could give us a way of trying to grasp the dynamism of society and to find a better way to resolve the. Contradictions, and then at the same time that we should not be limited to writers of the 19th century, mm-hmm. that we can also uh, not feel that the dialectic is uh, what is it a four dollar word or one, I forget the, the phrase, but
0: ten dollar word, ten dollar
1: word, what, yeah. whatever. I, I guess I only give it. I'd only buy it for four bucks <laughs> <laughs> on, the mar, on the free market. But that, you know, that it isn't just something that represents complex thought. But it's actually something you use and do something with. And that you can create good or resolve a problem or find a truth in it. Whether that's a transcendental truth or a personal truth, that remains to be seen. But it is meaningful yeah and i mean it kind of
0: goes back to something we were talking about early on and getting ready for this you know the dialectic is it is a verb more than it is a noun yes and it is active and it is it is a moving process and um i think you know it's kind of a ending statement i think what you said is actually absolutely right and kind of i think the hope of this show is a kind of dialectical process on the history of philosophy in and, and finding the contradictions between the thinkers of many different times and places and cultures and and the unification of those ideas. Yeah. you know and, and that that you know will open up new pathways for us you know, and, and further our understanding and bring up new problems for us to consider. so. Um, but yeah,
1: that's uh that's, that's dialectics for you folks. That's that's the dialectics. Buy dialectics for dollars.
0: You you heard it here first. You won't find prices that low anywhere else. <laughs> yeah. And uh so yeah, if you want to buy our dialectics, hit the hit that subscribe button. We've got a Patreon that you can contribute. Um. We're working on some stickers right now and some other goodies, so uh, follow our Facebook page or whatever to uh, stay abreast of those developments. And um, yeah, yeah, signing off.
1: Dialectics for everyone. <laughs> <laughs>